0: Hello and welcome to From the Trenches, the Business Examiner Podcast. My name is John McDonald. This episode features a special guest from HealthLink Medical Equipment. Robert Bascocci is the CEO and co-founder of HME, a 2021 EY Entrepreneur of the Year Pacific finalist. Our interview covers the company's wild adventure through the COVID-19 pandemic and highlights lessons learned along the way. We also cover their exciting Vancouver Island expansion plans and a whole lot more. Our conversation starts now.
1: So I started the company with my business partner back in 2000 and basically 12 January. It's kind of time goes fast. So we're actually approaching our 10th year, which is quite a quick milestone. Um, we started the company and, you know, essentially started from company about six people and then grown it to over 100 full-time staff as of today. Um, company, really the company is about providing people with home care, as well as long-term community um, equipment. So really we're all about keeping you at home or kind of choosing your facility of choice. And we do durable class one, class two medical equipment. So we do anything from wheelchairs, hospitals, um, beds, uh, ceiling lifts, patient lifts and commodes um, and other items. Um, a little bit about myself. So I actually started my career as a chartered accountant at Ernst & Young, um, as did my business partner who's a CFA. Um, we actually didn't work together. We were in different departments. Um, it just happened that we grew into be very good friends. Um, people always ask how we got into the industry. And I always say, you know, me and Cam are both very entrepreneurial. And we got to the point at EY where we knew we didn't want to, you know, stay in that industry. We really liked it, but we didn't love it. And we both really liked the healthcare space. We liked the kind of like the ability to help people as well as you know the complexity of the industry it actually makes it quite interesting so essentially we went into that industry and that's how the company kind of started so people always ask what my day-to-day is um day-to-day I spend most of my time helping kind of lead the team working with our um you know our managers our supervisors and then spend quite a bit of my time um contract negotiation we have a lot of different contracts and business um avenues so typically I'm kind of um, probably about 10-20% of my time is on business development.
0: Yeah, and I wanted to jump down to we, the reason we even started down this, this road of having this interview was I noticed that your guys were named as a finalist, for the EY Entrepreneur of the Year Pacific.
1: Yeah, sure. So it's, it's, an, it's an interesting question. So it's very rare to have... Um, so I was at EY for 10 years. It's very ra- rare to have EY alumni in the EY program. And um, Rare enough that I think the only ones in Canada to ever have it. Um, in the 10 years I worked there, I never actually met anyone. So it's a very, very rare occurrence. So and it's all done independently by third party judges. But I always say to people, it's not normal because obviously EY, most people stay in finance or accounting. So it's unusual that you have alumni that end up going into the EOI program. Um so it came about, we basically got nominated, we got nominated, nominations kind came, came in. Um, and typically, the nominations, I think, got nominated two or three times in the last several years. So, this year we got nominated, and me and my business partner said, you know, why don't we stand for it and let's, you know, let's kind of see this process and how it worked. And so, we got accepted into the program and then made it to be finalists, obviously. And it's, you know, it's a really cool program. I always tell people the EY one, it's benchmarked in BC, it's a, it's a tough award because like, you know, you're up against Save On Foods this year, um, you're up against companies that are like, you know, making cancer research. It's actually amazing to see the breadth of entrepreneurs in that program. So we really got taken into the program. And I would say, our, one of the reasons I would say we kind of showcase so well, for lack of a better word, is, you know, during COVID-19, people have responded differently, you know, throughout business. And, in our industry, and with what we do, you know, a lot of companies in our industry, and it was actually quite shocking. You know, they closed down, they weren't operating. And me and my business partner, you know, when COVID first started, we, you know, it was that kind of critical first couple of weeks in March. We met, and we were debating. We said, you know, should we close down? And as we were having those calls, it was kind of weird. Our phone started ringing, and we started getting these calls. It was from the hospitals and they said we need to start discharging patients and so we said okay and they're like we need to start emptying out the emergency rooms the to start emptying out the icu not icus but the all the discharge units to create capacity and so we're kind of sitting there and we're kind of like okay well, well we'll help and so that was kind of the beginning of what i would say was kind of a transformative period in our business um from that point on we ran at probably 125%. I would say it was a critical time, You know, we actually had to close down all of our other business units. So because we kept getting the calls and we kind of, so we met with our team and we said, look, we need to stay open. We need to do these hospital discharges. So they needed massive amounts of beds, mattresses, wheelchairs into the homes. The problem was at that time, we had a team of about 75, 80 people. And so it started off as you're doing five clients then 10 clients, today, then 15. And each client, it's like, a, honestly, it's a three, four, five hour setup. So you have to set the home up with the home care worker. And then the home care worker works with our team to basically discharge patient into the home. And then we had community workers supporting it. And this was done in an effort to create capacity. So we started running really hard and we hit two problems. One was labor and the second problem was supply chain. So kind of, and this is kind of our EY story on the people side we ended up closing down all of our business units except discharges because I didn't have the capacity of people so we actually had to put, we basically said you know for that particular health care system let's close down our stair lifts let's close down our rehab we'll just do discharges and then the second problem we had is we had sourcing problems so as this is all going on they ran me out of beds so at any given point in time I have about four or five hundred beds so i got down to the last 40 beds and i realized you know we're burning at this point 50 60 70 beds every three days and i'm sitting there and you have no clue when that's going to end other than every day they're calling you every half hour saying we got five people to go here five people go here and we also started setting up the mobile clinics with beds as well during this time so we got on the phone and we had to do some creative sourcing and I always tell this story and so in Canada I bought every bed in Ontario and that was you know probably thousands. so then <laughs> when we got all those beds we started looking at you know worldwide supply chains and so we managed to find another couple hundred beds in the US and then we because most of our supply chain is um, North American it's actually not from Asia and then we kind of got onto the UK and we managed to get a whole bunch of equipment there and we managed to source that equipment really between mid-march to mid-april and it was because of that that we kind of just did a leap of faith and we bought you know probably like what would normally be 12 months of inventory we decided just to buy it all because we could feel the demand coming and from that point on that was kind of the beginning of what i would call um, our COVID-19 kind of discharge plan and that was kind of where we kind of found the medical system and you know, I always tell people we got close to running out of equipment as in like two or three beds away from running out. People always ask me, what happens when we run out of beds? Well, I've never run out of beds. You don't run out of hospital beds. Running out of hospital beds is like running out of an oxygen tank. The problem is, is if you don't have a hospital bed, you can't discharge. If you can't discharge, the units all pile up with patients. So I think, John, that was kind of The basis for our EOI nomination was how we responded during that time.
0: Wow. That's a crazy story.
1: (laughs) At one point, I was the only company in BC with beds. And that's what we kind of became known as. Um, We also did a lot of Canadian sourcing. Like at one point during COVID, we we couldn't find overbed tables. And the reason you need overbed tables, an overbed table goes to the hospital bed and allows someone to eat in their bed. So in long-term care, they closed down the dining rooms because of COVID. So then the problem is, well, how do people have meals in their room? You need an overbed table. Well, don't laugh. There was no overbed table. So I phoned this company, in Quebec, because I thought to myself, what do you need to make an overbed table? You need metal and you need wood. So I phoned a steel company, a fabricating company in Quebec, and I said, <laughs> I said, can you make these overbed tables? And they said, well, send us the schematics. So I sent them the schematics that are like, we can do this, but we need wood. I'm like, well, wood tops, I can deal with wood tops. So I found another carpenter place to make wood tops. So we actually ended up going into the production of overbed tables, which was a fascinating story. So, of course, work gets out in the province that we've overbed tables, and then work gets out in Canada that we've overbed tables because we're now producing overbed tables. So, for another two months, John, I literally just did overbed tables, which I only sell. 100 over tables in the year, it's not a big product. I thought we sold like, I don't know, 3,000 tables in the span of like a month. So it was just, it was a time where if you responded and you could get the demand and help, you were, you were there. But it took every bone in your body to try to navigate because it was nothing but problems. It wasn't like you could just phone somebody and source overbed tables. No one had overbed tables. So then you have to think to yourself, well, can I make overbed tables? You have to kind of think outside the box of, you know, what is an overbed table, which is, it's not, you know, so that's kind of some examples of during that time of how we succeeded. And I think that was really our EOI.
0: Um, I want to ask you a little bit about kind of the origin story. I mean, doing the online prep for this, I saw there was a, it looked like you acquired a small business and kind of grew it from there. Can you kind of walk me through that a little bit? And then I, if you could speak to maybe the greatest challenge that you guys faced as you started to grow the business.
1: Yeah, sure, that's a good question. So we acquired a small company, it was actually called HealthLink Medical Equipment. So it was just a five, maybe five and a half person company based in Richmond and in about 2,500 square foot warehouse, so very small. And it was actually a family friend of ours. So what had happened was um, they had been looking to sell the business. Me and my business partner, Cam, who we're still at EY, we were looking at opportunities in the market and we liked healthcare and it kind of, the stars aligned to a certain degree in that we looked at it and we saw what we saw was a small company in a really good industry. And we saw something that we kind of put our own stamp on it. So we ended up acquiring that company but it doesn't resemble anything really to the company it is now. Um, It was a very small rental only company. So they just did rentals to private consumers. It had been in business, I'm gonna say around 14 or 15 years at that time, and had really just had a very good but very small niche business based in Richmond. So, one of the challenges we had taken out on over was me and Cam wanted, you know, just a different direction in terms of the markets we wanted to go into. So, in a funny turn of events, um, I started the accessibility division of our company. So, that's like the stair lifts, vertical elevating platforms. And I actually went on the road as a full time sales rep. For my business partner, Cam, went on to start our rehab division, which is kind of like our custom adult wheelchair market and specialized seating. And he went on the road, and um, both of us were basically full-time sales reps for the first about year, year and a half. And that was really the greatest challenge, I would have to say, was that time. Because, you know, when you're on the road, you're on the road. So you'd be with clients from 8 a.m. till 4, 5 p.m. And you'd roll back into the warehouse at 5 p.m. And it was like you had to kind of put your business owner hat on, and then you had to somehow you know, do your purchase orders, um, you know, deal with anything that staff had questions on. So the first couple of years was quite challenging because me and Cam were essentially selling in the business. And then one of the greatest challenges, I would say, was giving that up. Um, because when you're in sales, you actually enjoy sales. And it was actually tough at first coming off the road. Um, and although we love it now, it was a tough thing for us to actually give up in a way our book of business we had built. And then we kind of mentored a couple of different reps that ended up taking on over those accounts. And to this day, me and Cam still um, do a lot of account development, BD development, but we don't do the day-to-day sales just because obviously it's a bad business. So I think in terms of challenges in the early years, that was probably the number one challenge was how to balance that.
0: Was there kind of a, a moment where you guys knew that you had kind of broken through Um, i don't want to say made it because i think you know it's still pretty early on but was there kind of like a a key proof of concept moment for you
1: yeah that's a good question i think there was actually and i remember it very distinctly um and about you know 2000 i mentioned 2014 2015 we ended up going into pediatrics so pediatrics is obviously the children's side of the market so it's um hospital beds wheelchairs you know for children with disabilities and it's a very inspiring it's a very nice market segment but it's a very as it's a very complicated market segment so we ended up actually um, getting a staff member from Ireland who is an occupational therapist who had worked for about five, 10 years in the Irish system and we ended up starting that division that year and I think that was one of the most critical milestones we had and I wouldn't say it was like when we, the company got made but I would say it was a critical junction because we kind of redefine the company in those early years as going into the pediatric space, which has really been nice for us and our team to work in. And I would say that was kind of a really major milestone for us.
0: Going into the sort of maybe the maturity of the business as you guys kind of started to grow, I know there's rebrand, some new yep. locations and stuff like that. Can you walk me through uh, kind of what that looked like? And also maybe if you could touch on the reason to hit Vancouver Island.
1: Yeah, of course. So as the you know the business matured, um, we always laugh. We've never. I'm going to shock you. We've never had a year where we didn't change the location. And I always talk about this with everyone. You know, in my industry, um, everything comes down to how much space you have, how much you can logistic. And I'm a big believer in, and this is a leap of faith. Build it and they will come. So when we bought the business in 2012, um, it was in 2,500 to 3,000 square foot warehouse. Um, In 2013, the developer actually approached us and they offered us an ability, they basically bought our lease out so they could demolish it and build high-rise residential. So in 2013, this is like your first year in the business, we ended up moving into our current Richmond location, but we only took over, I think it was 7,000 square feet of time. Then in 2014, we doubled the size because the neighbor came to us and said, you know, we're basically leaving complex if you want to take it on over. So we combine the units to be up to 14,000 square feet. In 2015, we opened our first Surrey location. 2016, first Vancouver Island location. 2017, sold Surrey. 2018, rebuilt Surrey and to be twice the size. 2019, we took over a third bay in Richmond. And then 2020, we entered into basically our lease for the North Shore location. So I've never gone a year without adding or expanding location. And I always tell people, in terms of critical milestones in the company, that kind of shows you the growth we've had, or essentially we've had to add over the years, I would say on average, six, 7,000 square foot space. And every time I've added space, people have always said, you know, why are you doing this? And I always come back with, well, if I have enough space right now, and I'm growing 20% every year, I'm going to need 20% more space on average even if you you know and I always say it takes six months to a year from the time you want space to the time you get space including the build out right now I would say it's probably more like a year and so I think to answer the question that's kind of been some of the kind of critical kind of milestones along the expansion into Vancouver Island was done you know Originally, it was an interesting story. So we were growing our business in the Lower Mainland. So we had pediatrics going, accessibility, rehab, doing really well. And we were getting a lot of client calls and from existing clients that, you know, they had family members on Vancouver Island and therapists were calling us. And we were getting a lot of, you know, we loved to have another provider there. So I went to university over Vancouver Island, so familiar with the areas. And so me and my business partner, his family is from Ladysmith, So he's also, we're both of us know the island really well. We went over there, and apart from obviously loving the island for obvious reasons, it's beautiful, we really saw right away a need for another competitor. It was a space where they had kind of, you know, one or two companies doing it, but there wasn't a lot of product selection. So that was our first kind of what I'd call expansion outside the Lower Mainland, and we did that, and that was really a critical success factor for the company. You know, we actually moved about three of our existing staff um, over to Vancouver Island to start that location. And then we kind of started building it out. And, you know, the first year or two was tough. And then I would say by year two, year three, it was, you know, um, once we got our reputation established, got ourselves established as a local company, local staff, and it really started to accelerate. And so the Vancouver Island, that's kind of the background of why we went in was really, it was uh, the demand was basically very high and we got, we got kind of pulled into the market which is kind of as business owner usually the way you want to expand into it.
0: The last kind of business specific question I wanted to ask you was about kind of what you guys have planned for the remainder of the year. You mentioned in the notes here about a Nanaimo uh, expansion.
1: Yeah, good question. So the remainder of the year it's really going to be out uh, two new locations. So. Once again, we're out of space, which is the story of my life. So we basically acquired two new locations, one in the So that location will be ready. I'm going to say about March or April of 2022, and then our North Shore location will be opened up probably, hopefully November, December of this year. So the North Shore location is going to allow us to expand into critical areas of North Shore, West End, as well as up into Squamish and Whistler we also do a lot of work and um, you'll see in our LinkedIn stuff with first nations so because of those communities we serve um what we call it the north shore location really it's our hub for all those communities as well up to including let's like, for instance Squamish Whistler and then north in Nera. There. there's also a large amount of first nations in those corridors so that location is going to be servicing those regions and then the Nanaimo location um we have a lot of clients up And you would appreciate this in Central Island. I mean, those are massive areas, Nanaimo, Ladysmith, and Duncan. So right now, we're servicing those clients from our Coldwood location. And even though it's Central, it's A, we're out of space. And two, it's, we started off, you know, you have one van going up there a day. Then it's two, then it's three. Now it's like, you know, we're up there four or five vans a day. And it's hard on our staff to service those areas. Even though we have the NIMO staff, they live up there, they still have to come down to get the equipment. So essentially that's been a long-term plan of ours. and I'm happy to have it um, moving along is to get the second warehouse up there and then it'll be a full location. So we don't have to run our team up and down the corridor as much.
0: Getting towards the end here, just want to ask a couple of questions about your approach to management and leadership. Um, sure. You touched on sort of like the work in work on your business transition in the early stages. Is there anything else that sticks out about how you have approached managing your company since, you know, those first couple of years to, to where you guys are at now?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I think, you know, a good leader, it's, it's, it's hard being a good leader. It's not something to get trained on. You know, I'd say the first years, um, EY had a team or 10 or 15, but it definitely wasn't managing a company. I think to make a good leader, you know, you have to really develop people under you. And I know a lot of people say that, but it's more critical now than ever. You know, when you look at our company and said to me, what's our competitive advantage or what makes H to h and It's it's the people. And the only way to develop good people is to really coach and mentor. Um, and sometimes, you know, and I'll be the one to say this, you don't always have to be the master of everything. So for instance, Um, we have a really good supervisory team and an excellent leadership team in place, including managers. Um, We actually use three long-term coaches that we've developed relationships with. So we have three business coaches we use and they do coaching on anything from delegation, leading, all that. And the point is this, (laughs) I think it's a common misconception when companies want to try to build a team, I think they often look for external and then they kind of recruit in. Um, our philosophy has been, and always has been, that to basically recruit people in at junior levels, and then we want to grow our team and promote them. So for instance, all of my managers, so we have 12 managers, and we're all promoted from within our team, which is a really nice story, so it's all grassroots. But when you choose to do that, you then have to have really good training, <laughs> because you know, essentially instead of me saying, I'm going to go hire a manager of client services, I promoted my client service. CSR to become that position and so I would say that one of our key success is learning to identify early on a people that are ready to move growth grow the company but two and more importantly when you do a promotion not to just assume that, that skill set's in place and more importantly if you don't have the skill set as a leader to do it be willing to hire other people consultants you know there's so many great um you know courses we do we do really we have a pretty good framework now of how we onboard and it's using a lot of external resources and I found that has been really inspiring because A you're growing people and two you're using kind of different avenues to do it.
0: Last thing I maybe wanted to ask the accounting designation um and your kind of your accounting background can you talk about what kind of role that's played in your ability to be successful.
1: Yeah sure good question so you know, the first stem, um, the early years, the account designation was nice. And it was nice because, you know, uh, understanding your numbers is critical in business. So the, you know, forget the journal entries, how to do accounting. You know, I always say to fellow entrepreneurs, you have to live and breathe to understand your numbers. And the reality is you have to be able to know like margins. What's my margin on this product? Am I making enough, you know, to pay my payroll, meet this. I found that the account designation, it definitely gave me an advantage, same with CAM in terms of our ability to manage our business, our products, our different service lines. Um, as well as when we go into contract negotiations, you know, I always say contract negotiations shouldn't be uh, you know, you versus them. It should be, you know, obviously there's always gonna be friction, but you should be able to explain, you know, your cost basis and cost factors. And I've always found that the accounting designation has given me a better advantage in explaining, especially to outsiders. like if I'm going to provide you John, with a hospital bed, it's easier for me to say, okay, like here's the pricing, but more importantly, like here's just kind of like some of the cost factors that go into delivery fees, um, you know, fuel, transportation. So when we do proposals for new bids and new contracts, we're able to kind of break out almost the cost basis of those areas. And I found when you're dealing with Honestly, with private consumers, government, really anyone, not-for-profit, they appreciate the details of you explaining how your margins work and how what goes into the actual product. And so I found that that has been probably one of the biggest competitive advantages we have is an ability to understand numbers. And then more importantly, explain those numbers in a way that makes sense to people, um, as well as identifying even problems in our business, which we've certainly had where you look at a product line and you say, you know, this doesn't make sense anymore. Either we have to increase the price or we have to do this differently.
0: The final four that we've got for you here to wrap this up. Is there a favorite book or podcast that you're currently engaged with?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So I'm an avid reader. So my business partner loves his podcast. I prefer to read, there's no right or wrong answer. Um, So right now I kind of, I think I said to you earlier, I was reading five Dysfunctions of a team, which I just started a couple of nights ago. Um, I found that book has been quite good. I find Patrick Anzioni has some really good books. Um, I also found, um, you know, I also (laughs) like to read sometimes The Economist or just kind of like Wall Street Journal. I find when I read those, it gives me a better macro look at the environment. I think people underestimate that. So I kind of read The Economist every week. I read The Wall Street Journal and then I like to read, you know, one or two business books every couple of weeks as well and that gives me a pretty good well-rounded edge
0: best personal advice that you've received
1: you have to look after yourself first and it's not to be selfish but what they what they mean is you know look after your mental health and your personal health. because at the end of the day you're never going to be helping others or inspiring anyone if you're if yourself not a good mental when you first start your own company it's easy to fall into well i'm going to work 60 70 hours a week and there's nothing wrong with that but you don't. Know, balance that off with either your family and fitness there's a tendency to try to be everything to everyone and I think if you burn yourself out it's very challenging to come back from that so on a more positive note I think that was good advice and that actually gave my parents was to basically just look after your health first so you can then look after everyone else
0: app or piece of software you can't live without
1: and I'm going to say Microsoft 360 and I think people have a tendency to look at Microsoft products as, well, it's just my office my outlook. But I'm gonna tell you something. If you use Microsoft 360, including the analytics um, to its full advantage, um, some of the built-in analytics they have is really sophisticated. And I'm gonna say as an everyday business owner, that software is going to give you more than you think at a fraction of cost. And I think if people, a lot of people kind of get into these kind of sexy platforms and different ways. But if you just went into even just Microsoft 360 suite, for instance, went into your email analytics, looked at the way staff are working, how many emails coming outside business hours. It's actually critical to understanding the flow. I think it would be a really good tool. So that is to this date, my favorite app.
0: Favorite restaurant uh, on the island?
1: Oh, that was an easy one. Yes, asked that one. That was Il Tratto. Um, Obviously, my dad being Italian. I love Italian foods. That's my favorite restaurant in BC. Um, I started going there. My parents used to come over and visit me when I was in university. And, you know, a struggling student with, who couldn't cook properly at the time, they would take me to that restaurant. It's my parents' favorite restaurant. And I just, I love, I mean, the food's amazing. The atmosphere is amazing. It's just, honestly, it is actually my favorite restaurant of all time.
0: Thanks for stopping by From the Trenches, the Business Examiner podcast. If you want to learn more about the interviewee, please check the web and social links provided in the video or listening platform description. Please send any feedback to info at businessexaminer.ca with the subject line podcast. We'll see you next week.